right, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 2 as we continue our study in this book. Uh, If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 238. 2 Samuel chapter 2, we'll be beginning at verse 12, and that'll be on 238 of our pew Bibles. Now, I always appreciate um, people who tell me that they are praying for my preparation and preaching of God's Word. Um, This week, I was especially appreciative of that fact. Uh, And for those of you who read ahead, uh, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, If you don't read ahead, I encourage you to do so. It helps you be be more engaged with the actual service. That's why every morning we print on the bottom of the bulletin the passage we'll be studying together the next week. That way when you come, you already have questions. You're more engaged as it is rather than maybe just kind of passive, just kind of waiting to see what's going to come at you. And dads, as as a little note, a side note on that, this is just a great way to disciple your family and an easy way to do it. You know, one night around the dinner table, and this is easier when your kids are younger, you just read the passage. And you ask the kids, okay, what do you think this is about? Where where do you think Pastor Rick or the preaching is going to take us this Sunday? And I know some of our parents bring their kids into the service. So that helps them to listen for whatever themes or repeated words or whatever might be. So it's just a good practice to get into. Now, had you done that this week, you would have prayed for me a little bit more. And that's because in reading the passage this week... It kind of reads more like a chapter out of Game of Thrones than God's Word, right? Because if you didn't read it, let me tell you basically what it is. It is a narrative that basically comprises three fight scenes. You have what's called a champion combat, which is also also called representative combat, where you have an individual or a select few men representative of the larger army who battle it out. And then after that, you have a fight scene where everyone's involved. And then the narrative zooms in on one conflict between two individuals, two men, where one impales the other. And that's it. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. See you next Sunday, right? That's the passage. Uh, That's the passage we have to preach through or study through this morning. Uh, Of the 15 scholars, pastors, and other reference tools I looked at, only one actually dealt with this passage. The rest kind of globbed it in with the larger section of 2 Samuel. And, and I can understand why. However, I think this is, it does a disservice to it. Um, here's what we're going to do. Number one, I'm going to read the entirety of the passage. It's, it's 22 verses. It's a little longer. I do hope for the next three weeks you will read ahead because every week for the next three weeks we're going to cover an entire chapter. So next week's three, week after that's four, week after that's five. And I won't have time to read it in its entirety. So just kind of come prepared because we're just going to dive into it. Uh, then what I'm going to do is kind of, after I get through reading it, give you some historical detail and context so that you can orient yourself in what is going on in this passage. Because this is not a typical passage, maybe more so for the Old Testament, but certainly not the New Testament where we've been kind of camping out for the last couple years. But then what I'm going to do is talk about the significance of this. Why, what, why is this significant to us? And then hopefully wrap it up with the narrator's uh, application, what he wants us to walk away with based on this passage. So really I'm doing three things. And really, I try to do this every Sunday, but I'm making it very clear because uh, there's no outline for this passage this morning. Old Testament narrative does not unfold like a New Testament epistle does so often. So here's the three things. Understand the text. Got to get that. That's foundational, right? The significance of the text. So what? Why are we reading this? And then the application of the text. How am I going to live differently as a result? Those are the three things we're going to do this morning. Hopefully we can do them well. All right, by now you should be at 2 Samuel chapter 2. You won't need to stand for this because I'm going to be reading quite a bit. But read along with me or read quietly to yourself as I read the passage. Here we go. Samuel 2, 2 Samuel 2, 12. 
Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us or fight before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And then they arose and passed by over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, or the field of knives, field of stones, it could be either translated, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Now Azahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Azahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? And he answered, is it, it is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner sh struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. But, verse 24, Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night to the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Azahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Azahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. This is the word of the Lord. You see what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> you see the preacher's dilemma at this point. I mean, what are we, what, I don't know about you, but I feel it. Now, partly the reason I feel the tension and let me bring you in on this is because some of the way we read our Old Testament is not correct. A lot of times we read the Old Testament, especially parts that are more confusing, and if we're being honest, is just to check the box on our daily Bible reading plan, right? Got it done, read, move on. But that's not how Jesus said to read the Old Testament. Remember, how did Jesus teach us to read the Old Testament? He does. Luke 24 and John 5, not directly, but he tells us how we're supposed to read it. Luke 24, he says, do not all the law and the prophets talk about me. 
In John chapter 5, he said to the Pharisees, you look to the scriptures because you think that's where you're finding life, but all the scriptures talk about me. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus is under every rock and shake a tree and Jesus falls out. That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is that the whole of scripture, the whole of the Old Testament is pushing forward God's redemptive plan for humanity, how God will bring about a deliverance and free us from bondage of sin and decay and bring us into an eternal peace. That's what the Old Testament's all about, Jesus says. Are you looking for the gospel thread from Genesis all the way through because if that's how you're reading the Old Testament it will tell you about the Lord if that's not how you read the Old Testament you're looking to find you in the pages right and so if you're reading the Old Testament the way Jesus taught us that's when you read a passage like this and go what gospel redemptive thread is there here all I see is a, a tragic story of brothers killing brothers in confusion. They're trying to figure things out, and, and they, a battle, and they go home and bury the dead, and that's it. I, I don't sense any of what God's purposes are here. This is, doesn't feel right. About Wednesday, as I asked the staff to pray for me because of what I was trying to figure this out, that evening, that's when it hit me. So I looked at the text again and said, oh, Rick, come on. I'm trying to read the Old Testament like I read the New Testament. Premise one, premise two, here's an argument, here's a conclusion, this is what Paul says, this is how I should live, done. I'm trying to think it through. But I forgot, the original readers weren't reading this like an epistle. This was a letter, the drama of their, the, what God is doing. In other words, what feeling is the author trying to elicit in me? That's, by the way, why we like stories. Not because we, we like to think through like documentary things. Sometimes we like to watch movies kind of to veg out, but at the same time to pull us in emotionally. That's when it hit me. This is exactly what the writer wants me and you as the reader to experience. This sense of disequilibrium, the sense of senselessness of what I'm reading right here. In other words, in a world of two kings where allegiances are divided... The point is, life is often pointless. The meaning is that often life is lacking meaning. Now, if you're like an English lit major in, in, when you were in college, basically this is a postmodern text before postmodernism ever existed. The writer wants us to read this and realize, man, in a world of two kings like they're living in, conflict, confusion, chaos, misery, that's par for the course until the right king is enthroned. What you and I are to feel as the reader is this exact point. What's the point? All I see is despair and people who should be one fighting against each other. This is not the way this is supposed to play out. And in feeling that, friends, and in feeling that, you should have a longing for resolution. That's a human, that's a hu natural human tendency, by the way. Musicians understand this. When you play kind of a minor note, you kind of want to end that note on a major or something like that. You don't want to end it on that kind of down note. This sense of senselessness that we read is making us long for the resolution, for the one king to take his place. Now, in 2 Samuel, that's where the ark goes, right? In chapter 5, verse 6, the one king is enthroned. But before you actually can rejoice and appreciate why that's so important, you've got to feel the chaos of divided loyalties. In some sense, friends, isn't that the gospel? I mean, until you can appreciate, man, my life was chaos, confusion, and just muddledness. 
oh, that's why I need a savior. Until I can appreciate my lostness, I can't appreciate being found. In a sense, that's what we have here. The writer's saying, look, until you can really appreciate how chaotic our world was, you can't celebrate that we now have the king. Now, in this chapter, this section here, these 22 verses, carries a lot of dramatic conceptual weight. What do I mean by that? Remember from chapter 2, verse 4, right? David's crowned king of Judah. And there's a civil war now all the way up till chapter 5, verse 6, when David is now the uncontested king by everyone. He is now the king of all. But between those chapters, which for us is basically yeah, one page, is eight years of civil war for the people of God. But get this. Of the eight years of conflict, this is the only narrative of fighting recorded in the eight years. What that tells us is the narrator is trying to help us realize that this, this situation of senselessness, this, this equilibrium, this is not the way it's supposed to be, marked those eight years for the people of God. That sense of lostness, lack of peace, where sometimes good men die like Azahel, evil men live, the best plans they put together fall apart, and they don't know what sense to make of any of it, but they trudge on because they have to. Life's not supposed to be this way. But that's what it was for eight years of people, for these people. See, our challenge is, sometimes we read the Bible as like disinterested, affluent Americans in our coffee shop. Oh yeah, as a hell, ooh, that's brutal. Next. That's not the intention of the original readers. It was to help them locate themselves in a chaotic world where there was a hope, but yet it wasn't panning out that way. Why? And in some sense... Maybe what I'm describing is somehow some of you feel like your entire life is. This doesn't make sense. Why is it this way? Life's not supposed to be like this. I think that's the point the narrator's trying us to appreciate as we dive into this. I want that there in your mind as we jump into the text. So first, let, let's get back into the text. So what we have are two armies that meet at the pool of Gibeon. So here's the, the excavation. This was done in the late 50s, early 60s in Gibeon. And so this is more than likely the very pool they gathered at. Uh, if you know your Bible history, um, there's a huge extensive water system in Gibeon because you remember in the book of Joshua, it was the Gibeonites that deceived Israel uh, that they said, hey, don't attack us. We're actually from far away. Don't attack us. And then they made a deal with them and, and the Israelites realized, oh, the Gibeonites live right here. They said, okay, you can stay here. We're not going to sack and take over your land, but you're going to be our water servants basically. So Gibeon to this day, there's all these massive water systems that they've discovered. This is the actual pool of Gibeon. It's about 40 feet in diameter, about twice as feet deep, twice as, twice as, twice as deep as 40 feet. So it's a large pool. About 3,000 tons of limestone was removed for it. So to give you some, um, a sense of that, that's about 6 million pounds of rock that they had to remove. And so this was a massive pool. So the two armies arrive. And notice back in the text the literary style of the narrator. He's trying to point out that these two armies are very similar yet totally different. And maybe you felt that in the first couple of verses. So three things I want to highlight. Number one, the initial description of each army is identical other than the, the different identifiers. So for example, notice how the text describes them, verses 12 and 13. Abner, son of Ner, right? That's one army. The other army, Joab, son of Zeruiah. Servants of Ishbosheth, servants of David, went out from Mahanaim to the pool of Gibeon, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. 
almost identical in their descriptions. In verses 13 and 14, their placement around the pool is almost identical. They sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. The commands even given to two armies are almost identical in verses 14 and 15. Let the young men arise, let them arise, then they arose. What's going on? I mean, after all, these armies are in some sense the same. They are all sons of Israel. Verse 26 says, they're brothers. The narrator is drawing our attention to how these men are the same through this literary symmetry. But at the same time, as we take the larger context, context in mind, these two armies could not be more different. On the one side are men who fought and won against the Amalekites. On the other side are men who fought and lost against the Philistines. On the one side are men who are servants of God's anointed. On the other side are men who are servants of Abner's anointed. On the one side are men who could be thought of as collaborators with the Philistines. On the other side were men who refused the gracious offer of the true king of Israel. On the surface, they look like they're the same thing. But heart allegiances reveal they could not be more different. And then what happens next, after the narrator shows this, this kind of dilemma, that there's something so similar about them, but they're so radically different, kind of highlighting the tension, the text, the tension in the text. We get to this champion combat in verses 14 and 15. Now, representative combat, also, as it's also known, was very common in ancient Near East for two reasons. Number one, it was considered a more humane way to engage in combat. It minimized the bloodshed. And so... Uh, Joab and Abner deciding to do com champion combat was probably their idea of let's just try and resolve this thing in a humane way. After all, they're brothers. They're, they're, you can imagine friends looking across the pool at other friends, cousins maybe once or twice removed looking at each other and thinking, man, I got to fight them. So they're brothers. So they say champion combat, we can minimize the carnage. Another reason this was common in the ancient Near East was that there was a widely held belief that these kind of contests were ultimately decided by God or the gods out there. And so the thinking went, the, the more superior, the more pro, uh, powerful deity would allow their champion to triumph and settle the matter. You see this dynamic in 1 Samuel 17 when Goliath comes out and then David fights him and David says, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. You come, in the, you know, you come with all your technology and whatever. He was basically saying, my God is bigger than your God. That, that's what's going on here. In our context, the thinking might have been amongst Joab and Abner, look, there are two kings. There are two people claiming now to be Israel. It's time to find out. Who is the true Israel? Who are the true sons of Abraham here? Is it Saul's house or is it David's house? Which is why, did you notice, they bring 12 men from each side to fight. The question is, who really are the 12 tribes of Israel? We're going to find out right now. <laughs> Yet, in a bizarre turn of events, it becomes clear that the people of God were not going to be decided by the mere shedding of men's blood. All the combatants die, right? Don't, don't think of this as some silly kind of superficial, shallow Hollywood movie where they all simultaneously gut themselves and they all drop dead at the same time. The text is kind of, kind of giving you that idea, but they were all fighting and they all died, every single one of them. Neither Abner nor Joab 
grasp the clue, right? And full-on warfare breaks out in verse 17. So their good idea to minimize damages and, and minimize the bloodshed backfires in their face. All-out warfare in verse 17. Now, the narrator spares us the gory details of most of the battle that takes place in verse 17, but he does focus on one engagement, and that's, be, and that's between Abner and Azahel, because this incident right now has repercussions that even extend beyond David's life. And we'll see that as we study 2 Samuel some more. But we see this highlight of Abner, the general of the army, running away, and Azahel, Joab's youngest brother. And by the way, he was one of David's 30 mighty men. This guy could fight, a young guy, scrappy, fierce, chasing after Abner. Maybe he's realizing Abner really is the power in the north. I take him out, and we end this civil war right now. And Abner takes off. He knows what's going to happen if he strikes down Azahel. He even says it. If I strike you down, how can I ever face your brother Joab? This is not a good idea. Turn away from me. Fight one of these other young men is kind of what, what uh, Abner's saying here. Find your glory taking somebody else out. Don't force me to fight you. As the hell will not. He will not give up. And so Abner, being a more experienced soldier, more than likely, probably in one swift mood, takes his spear, grounds the head into the ground, turns around, puts the angle just right, and Azahel comes running in, his velocity, and basically impales himself on Abner's spear. No doubt as it comes out the backside, probably taking an organ or two with him, and he dies. Um, ancient spears, in our time, we might be thinking it's got a smooth, rounded edge, but ancient spears had metal casings on the end, so that they could be used kind of for prodding, but particularly kind of jabbing your spear in the ground when you were encamped without damaging the spear head. You see this in, in 1 Samuel 26. So this is a book earlier. David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. So here's a photo of some ancient spears. These are Greek spears. Um, I couldn't find any... Uh, renditions or uh, nice clean renditions of Hebrew spears or Philistine spears of the time period. So this is, uh, keep in mind, these are not the, this is not the spear head, this is the butt end of the spear. And so you can see it's not super sharp, but it's got a nice point on that. And so, and, and on Hebrew spears, the old copies I have, pictures I have, they're all, um, you know, they're thousands of years old, so they're falling apart. But it seemed that they had little barbs here, kind of like a good fish hook. So not only if you plunged it the back end into somebody, but as you pull it out, it would still take out organs no matter what direction you pushed it. So as you can tell, pretty vicious. This is a good chance of what happens in, in our passage as a hell dies on Abner's spear. The chapter continues with more bloodshed the calling of a truce, and a long march home to count their losses. Now, I can imagine if some of you are, maybe you haven't, you know, you grew up to the church as a kid, you haven't been at a church in a while, and now you show up this morning, and you're like, what in the world? Sometimes we have a saccharine view of Scripture, that every story has a nice, tight, and tidy end, and everything works out. That is clearly not the case. Most times in the Old Testament, Things don't turn out the way you want. This is a very complex chapter, and it's a complex situation. We learn that the enemy can become actually an ally. We learn that allies can act like enemies. Good men perish, evil men flourish. Life in a world with two kings, it's perilous, man. Maybe you feel like I'm still describing a little bit of your life. And finally, did you notice in this passage... That outside of Joab's kind of curse in verse 26, outside of that, 
There is no mention of God whatsoever in this text. Not in prayer, not in an action, not in a, a foreshadowing or an allusion to him. All you see in this passage, brokenness, confusion, chaos, and the apparent silence of God. Again, maybe some of you are thinking, this sounds like my life right now. Think about what the original hearers would have been thinking. Yeah, that's exactly what I see going on in the world. We are supposed to be experiencing God's redemption, God's salvation. We're supposed to be having something good happening. And all I see for years is chaos and tragedy. Brother and fighting brother. This is not the way life is supposed to be. Now, as I said, remember, as I said earlier, the writer intends for us to sense the vacuum of clarity, of direction, and hope that otherwise marks David's kingdom here. It is no coincidence on the heel of what we studied last week that the narrator would include this one, one story of their eight years of battle. What happened last week, right? Some people did recognize the true king, but most everyone rejected God's true king, and now we see the kind of world that leaves behind. Confusion, chaos, and destruction, and a sense of meaninglessness that they're filled with. Jesus alludes to something similar Keep your finger in 2 Samuel. Go with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, first book of the New Testament. I want to read to you a few verses of what Jesus says, starting at verse 34. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Okay, if you're someone who only comes to church Christmas and Easter and you happen to be here today, this is a shock, Right? Yeah, Jesus says it. There it is in, in red, so you know it's him, right? Don't think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. He says it twice. But a sword. What? For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Kind of sounds like he's describing 2 Samuel 2 right now. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus is not claiming to be a universal homebreaker. The point that Jesus is making is simple. Allegiances have consequence. Allegiances have consequences. Everyone is going to have to decide, and they're going to have to choose who to bow the knee to. Everyone. And that decision will both unify and divide. And to make it even more clear, he says it um, in two chapters later, look at what Jesus says. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Friends, what we're seeing in 2 Samuel 2 is probably the most graphic realization that allegiances have consequences. There's no sitting on the fence. Who is God's anointed? Will you follow God's anointed or not? We see that very clear in 2 Samuel in this narrative form. Jesus is reinforcing the same idea. Friends, 
I, I say this is the one thing the Bible tries to communicate, and I say that like almost every week, and there's a lot of things. So this is like one of ten things that the Bible is trying to get really clear. This is one of ten questions that the Bible is absolutely clear about, that you have to choose your king, and whoever you choose is going to have consequences in your life. That question is woven all through the scriptures. And sometimes we see it in narrative form like we're seeing in 2 Samuel. And it's coming out in this dramatic sense of the people having to choose between a false king, Ishbosheth, or the true king, which is David. We also see it coming out, that same question, in poetic form. Like, for example, in Psalm chapter 1, where there's this poetry of there's this one, the, the way of the wise and the way of the fool. Sometimes that question or that choice is posed in, in a parable form, like Jesus does in Matthew chapter 7, with the narrow gate or the wide gate. Or in Matthew 25, when he talks about the sheeps and goats. And oftentimes, that same question is posed to us in the contrast of metaphors all throughout the Bible. Light and dark versus darkness, life versus death, home versus exile, clothed versus nakedness, freedom versus slavery. And, and the very metaphors show the results of the choice you make. So if you say, I'm going to have God's anointed be my king, then light and life and home and clothed and freedom is what you're going to experience. If you say, no, I reject God's anointed, then darkness, death, exile, nakedness, and slavery is your lot. The Bible is constantly trying to confront us with the question that your heart allegiances will have consequences. In a world of two kings, there can never be peace. What's true of a nation's politics is true of individual hearts as well. Friends, I'd be remiss as a Bible preacher not to just put this on the table, that if you have not made Christ your king, the tension that you might feel in life that somehow you know this is not the way it's supposed to be, the longing for peace, the sense of senselessness in the world, if you do not make Christ your king, that will be your entire experience on earth and on through eternity. If you are a Christian and you are here, this tension you're feeling, this longing for peace, the sense of senselessness or lostness should remind you here on earth, you weren't made for earth. You were made for an eternity. In other words, friends, this is what I'm saying. Here, if you, are, if you have submitted to God's anointed, things will never quite completely make sense or fit. You should never feel, if you are a Christian, completely at home here. There should always be a sense of, of disequilibrialism, that this, this somehow isn't the way it's supposed to be because this world is out of balance. It is out of harmony. We live in this world with split allegiances, and you should always feel that tension if you're a Christian. You should always feel the, the in-between 2 Samuel 2 and 2 Samuel 5. Friends, that tension and I know this is so contrary to a lot of what evangelicalism pushes today, right? That, hey, Jesus is your mojo, he'll fix your marriage, help you communicate better, and your kids will turn out all right. I know it's completely against that messaging here. But the tension of feeling, wow, I don't fit, this doesn't feel right, that's there by design. As God, the great, great storyteller, is wanting you to feel the tension, the longing for the resolution. That somehow there's got to be a completion to this that's got to happen. And you go, oh yeah, that's right. That's in Jesus Christ. When he comes and he's recognized as king and he's seated on the throne. And when that day happens, all wrongs are made right. All things ugly made beautiful. 
All pain is forgotten. All evil's undone. But that's, that's when the right king, that's that day with one king. Friends, right now, today, we live in a world of two kings. And we're always, we should always feel that tension. If you don't feel that tension and you're a Christian, ask the Lord, am I too happy with this world? Am I too comfortable? Do I forget that there is a battle going on? And that very tension makes me long for the king to be crowned. Well, let me step back here and begin to start wrapping up some things. So I think what the narrator, the direction the narrator wants us to go. And that there is hope, by the way. We see it in um, chapter 3, verse 1. This is where sometimes the, the chapter and verse divisions cannot be helpful, right? This is, those are not inspired by God. We put them in later so that we could follow along each other in church. Um, here it is. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Yeah, we, we were seeing the results of that. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. If we just sit in 2 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 32, and we feel what the narrator wants us to feel, the senselessness, the disequilibrium, the, the meaningless of this and the confusion and the conflict, we'll miss the real hope. What this chapter and this verse is saying is, yeah, there is a war. You're going to feel that. But David is growing stronger and stronger, and Saul is getting weaker and weaker. In other words, friends, the full measure of what's happening in 2 Samuel cannot be understood by these 22 verses alone. In the same way, the full measure of what God is doing in your life now cannot be measured by what's happening in your life right now, good or bad or otherwise. You cannot know without some larger perspective a way to understand all that is taking place without which you can't possibly interpret the current moments. Just like we have in 2 Samuel. If that's all we had, we would be very despairing and confused. But we know where this goes. We need a perspective to help us make sense of the moment. So here's the question. What's the thing that gives you your perspective? What is the thing that you're using that helps you interpret whatever's happening right now? Whether it's good or bad, what are you using to make sense of the current moment of your life? Let me offer what I think are three perspectives that the culture around us are giving us to try and make sense of the way we, our lives right now. And just to make it easy, I've used the letter D for all of them. So here's the first one, and I call it Disney, hence the sparkles. All right, so the, the Disney perspective, and I don't have anything against Disney. I like going to Disneyland, but you guys, you understand what I mean by this. This is the entertain, amuse yourself so you don't have to think about how jacked up the world is perspective. Yeah, it feels like the world is in confusion and chaos and doesn't seem like there's any hope of what's going on. Don't worry about it. Just have fun. Think about rainbows and unicorns. Don't, don't, don't put your mind to things that matter. In fact, don't even think. Just amuse yourself. Get your subscriptions to Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, TikTok, on and on and on. And just check out, man, because that's what you want to be. That's a perspective the world's putting out there. You know, it creates, it's a shallow perspective and it makes shallow people. Right? So Disney. Just entertain yourself. And by the way, it's not all at Disney's feet. There were ancient Greek philosophers called the Epicureans. This was their philosophy. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Doesn't matter. Just have fun. There's another perspective our world wants you to get. It's called Descartes. 
And this is after Rene Descartes. He was a 16th century French philosopher, and he's one of the pioneers of what we call rationalism. If the Disney perspective is all about just enjoying life, it's kind of the shallow life, the Descartes perspective is all about the rational life, science. That's the thing you need to make sense of the world. And what's the message? Well, life is what it is. Deal with it. You live, you die. That's what life is. For those of you who need meaning and hope, you're going to have to make it up because it doesn't exist in the material world. That's all that exists in this world is material existence. What you can experience with your five senses. If we can't put it under a microscope, it's not real. Darwinism, the survival of the fittest, the law of the jungle. It's a dog-eat-dog world. You don't like it? Sorry. That's what it is. That's a hard perspective. And it makes people bitter oftentimes because we know that there should be more to life. But that's Descartes. That's science. They're thinkers, they're enlightened, but they're, it's a hard perspective. What else can I say? And, and by the way, I'm, I'm trying to talk about three major philosophical schools in three minutes. So, you know, you get what you, you know, put in perspective. The third one's Derrida, as in Jacques Derrida, the existentialist. You might have heard of like Albert Camus or Friedrich Nietzsche, but neither of their names start with D, so I went with Jacques Derrida. <laughs> this is the existentialist mindset. Nothing matters. Because your life is nothing. It doesn't matter. And when you die, it will be nothing. This is why a philosophy came out called nihilism from the Latin word nil, zero. And the existentialists say, we all feel what they call the absurdity of life. And that every one of us in this room feels that life should be and means more than it does. But the existentialists say, but it doesn't. So Derrida and Descartes, they're kind of offshoots. They're kind of siblings of one another. They'll say, that's the absurdity of life. We all feel it should be more, but we all know there's nothing out there. And it's absurd that we should feel that there should be more to life when there's just nothing waiting for us when we die. This is a very despairing perspective. And if Disney makes you shallow and Descartes makes you bitter, Derrida makes you suicidal. And actually, that's what happened to Nietzsche, right? He committed suicide. He, he was honest with his perspective. What's the point of life if nothing matters and it all ends up in a universal heat death? Nothing I do matters. Now, I'm not saying the world is pushing this on you constantly. Hey, choose one, choose one. But this is the air we breathe and some combination thereof. I hope you can see that none of these are satisfying. To just entertain myself away or to become hard and bitter or just give up in nihilism, none of that's satisfying. And that's why they, because they don't have this last perspective of the gospel, David. Let me read to you just six verses of a poem David wrote. And what I want you to listen for is this beautiful sense of balance. This beautiful sense of balance. You may be familiar with this psalm as soon as I can get to it. Psalm 23. Listen to what David says. And I want you thinking about these, these other perspectives entertain yourself, be shallow, um, be cynical, be hardened, or just give up. Listen to David. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, 
goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You sense the balance just in the way he's writing that he is in green pastures and he's also in the valley of the shadow of death. He says he will fear no evil, not because he doesn't believe it exists or that it cannot touch him. He tells us why. He says, because you're going to be with me. God prepares a table before him. And where is that table? In the presence of his enemies. David's not saying, his hope is not, God, you will deliver me from all these difficulties. No, he says, you will deliver me in the midst of my difficulties. And all behind it, there is this guaranteed promise that the goodness and mercy of God is going to follow him his whole life. And and the word for follow is often used of wolves hunting their prey. David's saying, your goodness and mercy hunt me down like a wolf stalking its prey. And you will follow me and one day I will be with you forever. He's not checking out. Even though, and keep in mind, this is David living in the midst of the civil war. He's not trying to say, I can't make sense of this. I just want to check out and have fun and not think about it anymore. He's not allowing himself to get bitter and hard and saying there's just no hope, so give up. He has a balance because he knows his God. Friends, just as we have to see this chapter in the light of the whole book, we have to see our lives in light of the gospel. And like this chapter, we have to recognize, man, this is what life is like in a world of two kings. When we have chosen the wrong king, when most of us have have gone away from God's anointed. We have to recognize that's what it's like and what life can be when the true king sits on the throne. For uh, my sabbatical, one of the books I had a chance to read was Tolkien's classic Lord of the Rings. Any Tolkien fans out there? Anybody read Lord of the Rings? Yes! And... Contrary to what most people think, the book's not about the rings, right? I mean, it's kind of an odd title, Lord of the Rings, but that's not the main point of the book. And, and, and here's the thing. Tolkien's main point in this amazing saga of almost a thousand pages is the main point of what I'm talking about this morning, right? It, it's not about the rings. It's not about Frodo. It's not about the fellowship. Tolkien's story, and, and it, it's not surprising because Tolkien was a devout Catholic, a committed Christian. He understood the gospel. And it's woven all through those books. It's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost surprising you don't convert when you read Lord of the Rings. Here's the message of the Lord of the Rings. And as soon as I say it, all of you who thought it was about the ring, you're going to be like, duh, how could I have not seen that? But isn't that how the gospel often works? Here's the message. Everything in this world lays under darkness and confusion, violence, disarray, and despair. Only until the true king ascends the throne. Only until the true king is crowned can there be peace, prosperity, and flourishing. That's the message. Friends, what's good for Middle Earth, it's just good for you and I too. Let me ask you this as we conclude. As we now live in a world of two kings, what describes your life? Is it confusion, chaos, uncertainty? Is that what describes you? Or struggles and trials in the, face, in the midst of your enemies, in the valley of the shadow of death, yet there is hope and confidence because he is with you. If the former describes your life more than the latter, may I suggest is maybe because you haven't really recognized who's God's anointed. Don't be like Abner and the men of Ishbosheth following a false king. Recognize who God's anointed is, and that's Jesus Christ. Recognize that without that allegiance, your life is going to be, 2 Samuel 2, confusion and chaos. 
but it can be 2 Samuel 5, when the king is crowned and all people rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and kindness to us. Thank you for the way you have written your message in so many ways so that we could not possibly miss it. Sometimes it's just the brilliant logical argument from the letter of Paul like in the book of Romans. And sometimes it's in beautiful poetry like we have in Psalms. And sometimes it's in the drama of lives being lived out in uncertainty and violence and confusion, yet always clinging to your promises. Father, I pray that my brothers and sisters, that we would be a church, that we would not define our current moment by its own self, but in the larger perspective of the gospel that David so beautifully speaks about. That we would recognize that our lives have meaning and purpose because we step back and see the larger context of your redemptive plan that includes all of us and transcends all of us. May we be people who worship Christ better because of the word that we studied today than we did yesterday. And we'll thank you in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.